And Heavenly Father, we thank you for so many things this morning. And as we turn our hearts toward the Scripture, we thank you for your Word. We pray, Lord, this morning that you would speak through it, that you would show us something fresh from the old Christmas story. Remind us again, Lord, what Christmas is all about. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There were several things when I was a kid that I learned to be very scared of and terrified of. And one of those uh, that I've carried over into adulthood was snakes. I don't like snakes. Uh, they're cursed from the beginning. If you read Genesis, it, was, it went bad for them early. And so they were cursed. God doesn't even like snakes. And so I figure, why should I like snakes? And so I was terrified of snakes. If, if a snake were to crawl into this room right now, we would all sort of get religion, if you will. We'd be standing on the pews shouting and screaming, waving our hands and so we, we would all have a Pentecostal moment and, um, and, and in a Baptist church. And so that's what would happen. And I would be jumping up onto the piano to try to save myself. You guys are on your own. That's just the way that it goes. And so, but over time I've learned to appreciate certain snakes, you know, the, the, the big rat snakes or whatever, you know, they, they do eat mice and rats and stuff. And okay. So I can appreciate that. And from what I gather, some of those kind of snakes even will, it will eat and take out some of the venomous snakes. And so I have an appreciation, but it's only because I've learned some of the deeper truth about snakes and it's taken me some time. I'm nearly 40 years old. And so it's taken a long time for me to have any kind of appreciation for them whatsoever. A couple of things that I remember from elementary school that I was taught to to be terrified of both required the same sort of response if you were in school and that was earthquake and nuclear attack in an earthquake you tell me right now where should i go in case of an earthquake i'm not going on top of the piano where i'm going under the piano get under that thing all right or you just take off running through the field i don't know which one you do but you get under the piano and and you remember those drills when you were a kid in elementary school and you'd, you'd have the earthquake drill and so you'd you know everybody would get under their little bitty elementary school desk that was about this big on the surface and you know and it's like like, how in the world? And, of course, you had the one kid in class who grew bigger than everybody else at that time, and they couldn't fit under the desk, and you were just terrified for your friends. I'm like, man, I'm sorry. You know, I was always a small guy. I could fit under the desk, and so no big deal. But what was that desk really going to do for you if the whole building collapsed on top of you? I didn't understand that. But And then in the case of nuclear attack, I was taught to fear the Soviet Union when I was a kid. And this was at the end of the Cold War. Some of you remember the very height of the Cold War and how terrifying that really was. I remember being scared as a kid because the, the, the Soviet Union still had nuclear capabilities at that point. We still didn't know what to think about them. Gorbachev had not torn down the wall yet. And so as a result, we were terrified. And we were taught the same thing. Get under your desk. It's a nuclear bomb. It's a, what are we doing? You know? I mean, I can get the earthquake thing a little bit, you know, except for my tall friend. I mean, you know, and so, but the, you know, get under the, so in case of nuclear attack this morning, I'm going under the piano and, and that, you know, we're all going out just, you know, that's it. We're all out. I, those are the things though, that I learned to fear when I was a young kid and they're still very vivid memories for me. I remember those drills and so on. And it's interesting as we get older and what I've learned both by experience and by paying attention to people is that we don't necessarily get any less fearful of things as we get older. In fact, in some cases, I think we get more fearful. We just hide them better. They're not external fears. Maybe your fear of snakes is sort of a running joke and it's cute now. Maybe your fear of earthquakes or your fear of nuclear attack, those things are from the outside. And as we get older, what I've found is that many of our fears come from within. 
and they still dominate our lives and they still cause us to have those certain types of reaction to those things. But what's really happening, I think, is that those surface fears over time give way to deeper fears that maybe even were developed when we were younger, but we didn't realize it. And so my guess is this morning that in this room we have lots and lots of people who are very fearful. Whether you want to admit it or not, we live in fear. Whether young or old, whether those fears are sort of on the surface and everybody knows about them or they're buried deep within you, we have a room this morning that is full of fearful people. And I say that by experience and also by just knowing people in general. And it's our fears that dictate everything that we say, everything we do, everything we think. We're in a a Christmas series. We started it last week, and we're calling it What Christmas is All About. And it was inspired by Linus, the great character in the Charlie Brown's Peanuts gang, who, when Charlie Brown screams out, doesn't anybody know what Christmas is all about? Linus calmly walks into the spotlight and explains everything with incredible uh, wisdom. Because all he does is quote scripture. And he says, I can tell you, Charlie Brown, what Christmas is all about. And he goes on to quote Luke chapter 2. And so if you got a Bible, turn there, get it somehow handy with you. Luke chapter 2. I will not be reading from the King James like Linus quoted, but I will be reading this morning from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. If you got that one, then join me. If not, you can certainly follow along just as well. It says it this way in the version that I'm reading. In the same region... Shepherds were staying in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today a Savior, who is Messiah, Christ the Lord, was born for you in the city of David. This will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped wrapped snugly in a cloth and lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the feeding trough. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard just as they had been told. Over the next several weeks leading up to Christmas morning, which will be on a Sunday, I hope you'll be able to join us for that. It should be a pretty special day to celebrate the Lord's birth on Christmas morning. But from now until leading up to then, we're just going to camp out in these verses, really centering on the experience that the shepherds had there with the angels and then with Jesus and what they were told throughout. And so we're learning what Christmas is all about. Today, what we're going to look at, if you just want to kind of want to focus in, we're going to be in verse nine and just the beginning of verse 10. We'll get to the end of verse 10 and some other verses next week, but we're just going to focus there on that short little part this morning. It says, after it describes the the, the shepherds who were staying out in the field, and that's what we talked about last week, the angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. Other versions use words like suddenly, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared. And that's really the, the idea that all of a sudden, out of nowhere, these shepherds who were just simply out in the field, keeping watch, just taking their turns at night with their turn, their shift to watch the sheep, all of a sudden an angel of the Lord appears to them. 
This wasn't that the guy just sort of casually walked down the field and said, hey, fellas, how you doing tonight? Sheep doing okay? You guys got enough pasture and whatever? Hey, by the way, my name's Gabriel. It wasn't anything like that. It was all of a sudden this angel from the Lord suddenly appears to them, and the glory, it says, the brightness of God, the very presence of God that is so bright that one day it will light heaven for all eternity. The glory of God will do that. We won't need the sun anymore. The glory of God will do that. That light shines all around them. And the idea of it being all around them wasn't that it was up in the heavens somewhere. It was all around them. They're surrounded by it. It's almost like a movie scene, if you will. Something that, that Hollywood would create with all the lights and this overwhelming brightness. And there they are in the field with the glory of God surrounding them. Not off in the distance, but around them. And it says they were terrified. No kidding. I think I'd be a little bit scared too. I'm a shepherd minding my own business. I have nothing really to do with Jewish religion because I can't participate. I maybe want to, and I know some stories about what God did way back when for our people and so on and so forth, but I'm not really into that thing because it can't be. And here comes this angel, and the very glory of God shines around me, and I have no idea what to think. They're scared to death. They were afraid of the glory of God. They were scared to death of what this meant for them. If they knew anything about the Old Testament, which I assume that they did from their upbringing, they would have known that the glory, the presence of God was a terrifying thing for most people in the Old Testament. The Israelites, in fact, asked Moses once upon a time to go speak to God and please don't let God talk to us because we're scared to death of God. You go on our behalf. God's presence was somewhat comforting in the fire and in the cloud that he led the Israelites through the wilderness with, but for the most part, it was terrifying. In fact, once a year, the high priest was allowed to go into the very presence of God, but even he was scared to death, and it was only one guy who went through a lot of different rituals to present himself before the Lord in such a pure way that God would not kill him because he entered the presence of God. There's a scripture in Exodus chapter 33, if you want to just write down the reference. Where Moses asked to see the glory of God. Exodus 33 verse 18. Moses said, please, Lord, let me see your glory. And God said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he answered, you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place near me. You are to stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. You know that song? That's where it comes from. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. The glory of God could kill somebody. And so as a result, these shepherds were rightfully terrified. Terrified of what they didn't understand. Terrified of what they thought God had shown up to do, which would be to kill them and destroy them. And you think this morning how terrified they were. And maybe God has not shown up to you in the presence of an angel, but there are things in your life that you are terrified of. Scared to death. And even now they eat away at you as you think of the possibilities of what could happen. Because let's be honest, what if... What if all the crutches that hold you up in your life were kicked out from under you and your deepest fears were realized? What then? For some, you'd say there's no reason to keep living. I mean, if my deepest fears were truly realized, there is no reason for me to keep going. 
I, I did a little reading this week, some research on the deepest fears that humans have. And I found a list of uh, on a psychology website that highlighted ten fears, deepest fears that humans have. And many of these, unfortunately, will be very familiar to us. Uh, they listed number ten as losing your freedom. Freedom, of course, doesn't mean the same thing to everyone, and it can kind of change over time what that might mean to you. <clears throat> but the bottom line question is, what would you do, what would happen if you were to lose the power to control your own life? What would happen? What if you were at the mercy of other people all the time? What if no matter what you did, you couldn't control the outcome of your family, your work, your health, anything? Fear of losing freedom. They list another is the fear of the unknown. I think many of us can relate to this one. Your mind tells you that you've got to have all the details. You've got to understand everything. You must know all the facts and all the possibilities and all the potential outcomes in order to move forward with a decision or a relationship or a commitment or anything. You've got to have everything. You've got to know it all. We believe if we know all those facts that we can somehow then control the outcome of the situation. So this one's tied closer to losing your freedom. If you don't know about something, then you don't have control over it. But if you do know something, then you can control the outcome to some degree. And so if we know something and we can control it, then there's nothing to fear. And this includes things like being afraid of the dark. Some of you are still scared of the dark. What's the first thing you do when you enter a room? Turn the light on. Why would you not? Exactly. Some of you are crazy, like walking through the dark. I've been in here before at night. The light switch is way back there in the corner. You got to hit that button. It says blackout, and you know what's coming. It's a blackout. And then you try to navigate the side. You got the wall, and you got the pews, and so you maybe turn on your phone a little bit, or maybe all you forgot your phone in your office. So then you got to walk down the aisle, and then all of a sudden, this automatic air freshener over here just. Try not to forget my phone in my office, you know. But it's a fear of the unknown. What changed? Nothing. Just got dark. Just couldn't see the next step in front of me. And isn't it true that in life so many of us are scared of what might be the next step, that we just can't see what's beyond right now, and we just can't deal with any potential change because, well, what if, and what if, and what if, and what if. And it keeps people from making decisions which actually allows other people to make decisions for them, which then causes that person to lose their freedom, which they're terrified of. It keeps people from committing to things and relationships and so on, because, well, what if it doesn't work out? There's also the fear of pain. I still haven't found anybody yet, personally, that I know who loves physical pain, who just absolutely loves Most people are pretty scared of it. Nobody that I've found who just truly loves it, well, just give me some more of that. Thank you, sir. May I have another? Give me some more. No, I haven't found anybody like that. Because despite what the movies tell you, pain is actually painful. It, It hurts. You don't just bounce back, shake it off, and then heroically save the day without being slowed down at least just a little by some pain. We don't like pain. There's a reason that some of you this morning took some Advil. Because you kind of hurt when you got up, you know what I mean? Those joints just aren't quite working the way they used to. There's a reason that if you have surgery, you take Percocet afterward. There's a reason that if you have a sports injury, you put ice on it. You're trying to reduce the pain. Pain sometimes, of course, can be helpful to us, but we don't like it and we don't typically seek it out. There's also the fear of disappointment. 
There's a reason that some people never try anything new. You know, because if they never try anything new, they can't fail at that new thing. They can never have the rug pulled out from under them, and they can never then be disappointed. And their fear of disappointment leads them to not try anything new and to lower their expectations to the point where, you know what, I expect nothing, and so if I get nothing, that's exactly what I've expected. I'm actually happy that I got nothing because that's what I expected. I'm not disappointed that I got nothing because I expected nothing, so I'm not disappointed. I avoid my great fear. And certainly everybody's had a bad experience at some point in life with something or someone that's caused this particular fear of disappointment because somebody or something has let you down. It's inevitable. It's happened to you. Maybe it's a parent or a friend or a spouse or a job. And some here have been so disappointed that you've vowed to never let it happen again. And you might not admit it, but you're terrified of disappointment. My research also showed a fear of misery. Misery, they define as the inability to meet your basic human needs. Living in misery means that you don't have financially what you need. You don't have emotionally what you need. You don't have physically what you need. And it's a feeling of desperation, the absence of whatever you might need in the moment. Misery isn't something that anybody wants to experience, but many here know what it feels like. Physically not being able to pay the bills or provide for the family, or buy groceries, or whatever it may be. Emotionally feeling as if you're not loved by anybody who actually matters to you. You know what misery can feel like. There's also the fear of loneliness, which sort of goes along with that. Even the most introverted person that you could ever meet, the definition of being introverted means that being around a lot of people just drains you. Not that you're not friendly, it just means that it drains you to be around a lot of people. Those who are extroverted, they get energy from being around lots of people. Even the most introverted person can't go through life completely alone you know we might joke about that boy i tell you what i just love to move to that deserted island and be by myself and get away from all these knuckleheads in my life that's what i want to do but the truth is that loneliness means no one cares not just that you're alone but that no one cares about you that no one notices you that no one encourages you that no one really knows you There's also, and this is a very strong fear, there's the fear of ridicule or criticism. Now some of you, now you tune in a little bit because maybe you don't deal with the fear of loneliness, but you sure deal with the fear of ridicule, the fear of criticism. How many of us are willing to do anything that we can to avoid being criticized? In some cases, this is the greatest fear for many people here. Because criticism means you've done something wrong. That you can't please everyone. That you aren't perfect. That you missed something. That somebody isn't happy with what you've done or who you are. There's a reason that so many incredibly talented people never make anything of themselves. And you wonder why. And you think, boy, they had so much potential and so much talent. But they were scared to death that no matter how well they did, even if they did it perfectly, that that passing comment would still be there. That someone would say something to them. And they would be criticized, thus pointing to the fact that they weren't perfect. And as a result, those folks, they don't try. They just do the minimum. They just stay behind the scenes, never to cause a ripple in the pond, because they don't want to be criticized. And then there's the fear of rejection. This one hurts, because it's criticism with follow-through. Not only has someone not approved of you, but they're doing something about it. 
They're not just saying something to you or about you. They're, they're, they're shunning you. They're pressuring you. They're calling you out. <clears throat> they're talking about you. They've fired you. They've threatened you. Or they've done whatever they need to to get you to conform with the ideas, with the opinions, and with the actions of other people. They've rejected you. And it's the fear of rejection that causes not only young people, but all of us to do things that we would not normally do. That we know are not right. In fact, we know are wrong. The fear of rejection explains why so many people do what they do. And it explains why in a very short period of time that social media has entirely changed our culture and not for the better. Because you'd better get on board with whatever is trending. Or else you'll be shamed and you'll be rejected by the entire world. The second deepest fear that they list is the fear of death. The fear of death is not number one. I'll let you guess in just a moment what is the deepest fear that they have concluded that people have. But the fear of death is number two. The truth is that none of us here, at least to my knowledge, have any kind of first-hand understanding of what happens after we die. We've not been there. The fear of dying causes some people to avoid the thought of it altogether. Just don't want to think about it. La, 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 la. Don't, don't make me think of it. You won't go to a funeral home. You won't go to a funeral. You won't do anything because you do not want to think about the idea of death. And for others, the fear of death paralyzes you. It's all you can think about, and it consumes you. And maybe you're a person who's gotten older and you've had health problems and now you're consumed by it. And you show up at church and you smile and you make everybody think that you're still just the the boisterous, happy-go-lucky person, but you're terrified. In some, the fear of dying leads them to live recklessly and without concern. Or maybe to live just dead serious all the time. Because you know what? We're going to die. You know, it's like that movie, What About Bob? You ever seen that movie a long time ago? You are going to die. That's what the little kid keeps saying. I am going to die. And they just over and over, and they drive themselves nearly insane, as if they weren't already, drive themselves nearly insane by this thought of death. As the old saying goes, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Isn't that true? The number one deepest fear in this particular study was the fear of failure. The fear of failure. Even over the fear of death. Very interesting. And maybe for you it's not that way, but I would venture to say that if you're normal, that the fear of failure drives you quite a bit. It's this fear that rules everything that we do sometimes. Because everything we do or don't do, in some cases, is meant to avoid failure. Because failure to many of us would mean that we're worthless, that we're useless, and therefore we are hopeless. And some this morning look back over your life and that's all you see are your failures. Over and over and over and over and over again, you perceive that you have failed in this and failed in that and not lived up to expectations. And some are terrified that you'll not only fail in your own eyes, but certainly in the eyes of everybody else. No matter how hard you try, you fail. No matter what you do, you can't succeed. And so, why bother? I'm just not good enough anyway, you say. And so here we are this morning. Like the shepherds in the field, we, we, we sometimes live right in the midst, surrounded by all of what scares us to death. Terrified. Just like the shepherds. And what were the words that the angel then spoke? In the King James, it says, fear not. 
The angel got it. They're scared. I showed up. The glory of the Lord shines around everybody. These guys are probably pretty scared. And he looks at them and he says these words, fear not. And it's that same message that God proclaims throughout the scripture. Fear not. It was the message to Abraham, to Moses, to Joshua, to the prophets, to the shepherds, to the early church, to the believers in the book of Revelation who were being persecuted. Fear not. That's God's message throughout the scripture. Fear not. Be of good courage, he says over and over. Take heart. Fear not. Do not be afraid. Over and over and over. How are the shepherds not to fear? When what they were terrified of was staring them right in the face. And how are we not to fear? When it's quite possible that many of us have, have, our, have had our greatest human fears realized. The way that we're not to fear is what comes in the next word. He says, fear not, and in the King James it says, for behold. In the version I read this morning, it says, fear not, for look, don't be afraid, look, behold, take a gaze at, take it in, focus on, meditate on, think about, behold, let it be where your eyes fixate. And what does he say to behold? He says, behold, I bring you what? Good news of great joy. He says, here's your fear right here. And that's all you can see. And let me tell you, fear not. And they're thinking, come on, fear not. And you're thinking the same thing this morning. Thanks, God. Okay, don't be afraid. All right. And God says, fear not for behold, look at, take a glance at the good news. The truth is that when we live in fear, when we live there, what I've found in my life to be true, when I live there in the fear, it's because I don't understand or I don't believe God's truth. That's where it's at. When I, when I live in fear, when my fears conquer me, it's because I do not understand or I don't believe God's truth. You think about where your fear has been taking you. Really, it's nowhere. It's maybe taking you under the piano. You're just hiding out or on top of the piano because of the snake. You're, just, you're doing anything you can to, to hide from, to get away from, to protect yourself from what you think is threatening you. And the, fortunate, the unfortunate thing is it's all false protection, isn't it? Because if the snake's big enough, he can climb up on top of the piano. Then where am I going? If the earthquake's powerful enough, the piano's falling on me. And if the nuclear bomb hits, it ain't going to matter anyway. You know, it'll take care of the snake and the earthquake won't bother me at that point to begin with. It's all false protection, to be quite honest with you. And our fear that we live in is stealing our joy and our happiness and our peace and our sleep and our health and our emotions and our relationships and our faith. And it's killing us. And I wonder, do you ever stop to think, is there no alternative to this? I mean, is this what I'm doomed to experience is just fear and paralyzed, you know, behaviors and mindset and can't get out of this. I really believe that one by one, all of these deepest fears are addressed in the good news of Jesus Christ. If you were writing some of those down, I want you to make a couple of notes. I'm going to roll through these real quick and I'm going to show you how Jesus addresses each one of these and then we'll be done. We fear losing our freedom. That was the first one I mentioned, the loss of freedom. The truth is, the hard truth is, we don't have much freedom to begin with. And absolute freedom would absolutely destroy us because we couldn't handle it. We wouldn't know what to do with it. 
There's so much that we can't control. You are at the mercy so often of the actions and decisions of other people, aren't you? There's so much you can't control. In many ways, you don't even have control over the routine things you've come to grow accustomed to. In truth, we've already lost our freedom, and it's really an illusion anyway. So what then? Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 9. Verse 23, he said to them all, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Then verse 24, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. What is a man benefited if he gains the whole world yet loses or forfeits himself? Jesus talks about losing our freedom for his sake is actually our gain. We actually gain freedom. We lose our chains. The song that we sing sometimes, Amazing Grace, my chains are gone. The Lord has broken them. He set me free from the power and the penalty of sin. Paul said it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Not that we would still be bound up by all these old things from our old nature, but so that we would understand and experience freedom. We believe sometimes that belief in Jesus puts chains on us and limits us, but it's actually the life that God has designed for us to live like never before, free from the penalty and the power of sin. We fear the unknown. The truth is that none of us know what's going to happen in the next second. You didn't know I was going to stop, did you? You didn't know that. You thought I was going to keep on talking. I talk pretty fast when I'm up here, and you thought I was going to keep on going. But I didn't. I stopped. You didn't know that, did you? It was unknown. And there for a second with the pregnant pause, you didn't know what to do. I wasn't expecting that. Did he forget what he was saying? Does the iPad go out with his notes? I mean, what's going on? What happened? You didn't know. There are more variables at work than we can possibly imagine or even know. And the only things that are relatively certain that we can count on are things completely out of our control in the first place. Gravity. Rotation of the earth, stuff like that. We can count on those things to a large degree, can't we? But we, can, we can't control them for a second, and we know a lot about them. So in truth, we, we really know nothing, even if we think we have it all together. And as a result, we can control nothing, no matter how much we really know. So now what? Well, it's in Jesus that all of those unknowns are made certain. What if? What does the future hold? The Bible tells us He will return for His bride, the church. What if things change? The Bible tells us Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What if I'm not in control? He's got the whole world in His hands. What if I don't know what to do? Jesus said He is the way, the truth, and the life. What if? Jesus, that's what if. We fear pain, physical and otherwise, yet we know it's inevitable. It's going to happen. You and I are going to get hurt, sometimes often and sometimes very deeply. And it's in Jesus that our pain has a comforter. He took upon himself pain that none of us will ever fully understand. He died the most horrific death that that humans have ever created, death on a cross. And he died at the hands of those he came to save, abandoned by all his friends, alone. And on the cross he experienced what he feared most, which was his heavenly father turning his back on him. He has suffered, he has hurt, and so as a result, he understands. And one day, he said he'll take it all away. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4 says it this way. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. He is the answer to your pain, physically, emotionally, relationally. He is the one who understands. We also fear disappointment, and rightly so, because it's everywhere. 
People let us down. They do what they say they wouldn't do. They don't say what they don't do what they said they were going to do. And life is full of disappointments. You learn that as you get older. Sometimes you learn that very early on. Not only do we fear being disappointed, but we fear being a disappointment. And certainly we will. As much as I love you and as much as I believe that you love me, we're going to disappoint one another as pastor and church sometimes, aren't we? It's just the way it's going to be. We're going to let each other down. We're not going to follow through on this or that. It's just it's part of being human. What do we do? You find in Jesus one who never disappoints. Now, I'll be honest with you. Jesus doesn't do it our way. And so if you're looking for a Savior who's going to do things your way, you will be disappointed in Jesus because He ain't going to do it your way. The disciples early on were disappointed with Jesus. In fact, the apostle Peter pulled Jesus aside and said, Lord, you're never going to the cross. We're not going to let this happen to you. And Jesus looked at him cross-eyed and said, you are Satan. Get behind me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but only what you want. You're going to be disappointed if all you have in mind is what you want. But if you've got Jesus in mind, he will never disappoint because eventually the disciples got it. Eventually they were satisfied. Eventually they were willing to lay down their lives for him because he never disappoints. And in Jesus, we also have someone who overcomes our propensity to disappoint those around us. He's the only only one who understands that we can't help but disappoint people. We can't help it. As folks who are surrounded by sin, as folks affected by sin, we cannot help it. And He's the only one who can do anything about it. By our nature, we disappoint. But by His death, He lived up to God's standards so that we would no longer disappoint God. We fear misery financially, emotionally, physically. And in truth, we lack the resources that we often believe that we need to be happy in life. So I guess we just learn to deal with it. Is that the deal? Not because of Jesus. In Jesus, misery is reversed. Over and over and over, the people that Jesus interacted with were lifted above their situation. Not necessarily that their situation changed. They were lifted above it and out of it spiritually. The Bible tells us that we, even though we live here on earth, that we as believers in Jesus have already become citizens in heaven. That is our true home. Jesus came for those in misery to lift them by His death, His resurrection, and eventually His Holy Spirit to give them joy and peace that no amount of health or wealth could ever bring. We fear loneliness. None of us wants to be irrelevant, unloved, or ignored. And yet it happens, doesn't it? There are people in your life for whom you are irrelevant. You are unloved and you are ignored. And maybe you think, well, that's just my cross to bear. I'm just lonely. Not according to Jesus. According to Him, you are relevant just because you exist. You are loved just because He created you. And you are not ignored. In fact, the Bible tells us that God's thoughts toward us are more numerous than we could ever count. And you're never alone because according to Jesus, He'll never leave you or forsake you. We fear criticism. We're desperate to avoid it. But no matter how hard we try, we can't avoid all of it, can we? Are we doomed just to endure it? To be destroyed whenever criticism comes our way? Jesus had a little different take on it. He said this in Matthew chapter 5. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
And he also says there will not be any criticism, any ridicule from God. Paul wrote about it in Romans chapter 8. He says there's now, for those who are believers in Jesus Christ, there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We fear rejection. You don't want to be left out. You don't want to be shunned or shamed or pressured. But unless you are an absolute chameleon, it's going to happen to you. There will be some group that you will not be able to fit in with based upon who you are, what you look like, where you came from, how old you are, what you believe, whatever it may be. At some point, you cannot change to accommodate everyone and you will be rejected by someone. What's the answer? I believe it's found in Jesus who said that ultimately God has the right to reject us, but He has not rejected us. Instead, He has not called us enemies, but has now called us friends. Jesus, whose death has proved that we're not rejected by God, but loved infinitely and unconditionally by Him. It's Jesus who took the shame that we deserve. He took it upon Himself and who tells us to no longer conform to this world, but be transformed by Him. We fear death. You can avoid thinking about it if you want to. Or you can be consumed by thinking about it, but you can't avoid it. Because if you have read the studies, they tell us very clearly that people die. In fact, what they tell us, maybe you didn't know this, they tell us that all people die. Everybody. Nobody gets out of life alive, they tell us. Nobody. One out of every one, 100% of people die. So you can be consumed by it, you can avoid it, but it's going to happen at some point. So is life just a slow march to an inevitable grave? Just one day, as some of the old folks here like to tell me, just going to move across the street to the cemetery. It's not just a slow march to an inevitable grave if you know Jesus. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He called himself the resurrection and the life. And Paul wrote these words in 1 Thessalonians 4. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Since we believe Jesus died and rose again, in the same way God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died through Jesus. For we say this to you by a revelation from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You hear that at a funeral, you don't hear that in church very often. You hear that at funerals. But you don't hear it here very often. But the fear of death is conquered by this truth that one day those who have died in Christ will be raised again to be with Him forever. Death is not the end. And the number one fear is failure. We want to be seen as competent, as worthy, as successful, as somebody who can make it on our own. We want our efforts to be rewarded. But you got a list of failures from failures from just this week, don't you? And they're eating you alive. And you hate yourself for it. And you don't understand why you can't get it right. And why you can't be perfect like all those other people. And like all those other people expect you to be. And you just can't do it. And over and over and over you think and you perceive that you have failed. What could Jesus possibly have to say about that? Well, his life proves that God knows we're going to fail. Jesus wouldn't have had to have been born if we were perfect. 
He wouldn't have had to live a perfect life if we could do it on our own. His life proves that God already knows we're going to fail. His death proves that God knows we can't make up for our failures. That somebody had to die in our place, make up for it for us. And His resurrection proves that our failures cannot and will not defeat us. Paul wrote about the fact that he called himself the worst of all sinners. He talked about the fact that he's not already gotten to where he knows that he needs to be, but he's still pressing on. Failure doesn't have to stop you. And so, shepherds, this morning, what will you do with all your fear? As you stand there surrounded by what you are afraid of most, what will you do? You can cower and you can remain terrified and confused and defeated this morning. You can stay right over here under the piano. You can hide out. And in life, you can spend your whole life just hiding under the piano, if you will. You can do that. Or, or you can behold the truth that the angel talked about to the shepherds. Unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Good news, which will be for great joy for all the people. That's what Christmas is all about. That's the truth that overcame the fear for the shepherds. No longer would they be terrified in the presence of the Lord. No longer would they have to fear what God was doing. Instead, the good news had arrived. And they need only behold it, look at it, fixate on it. And the same is true for us. No longer must we be terrified and fearing of the things that I've mentioned today. Like the shepherds, we don't have to fear being in the presence of the Lord. Because of Jesus, He's taken away all those fears. God has come near to us. And let me encourage you this week with one simple statement. Let me encourage you to fight that great fear with even greater truth. Fight those great fears with greater truth. They will come this week. Just because you've heard a sermon on it doesn't mean they're going away. They will come this week. That is the only answer to your fear. It's not how smart you are. It's God's truth. It's not your great plan. It's God's truth. It's not even the advice of a great psychologist. It's God's truth and that alone that will conquer and defeat your great fear. And so this morning, if you're bottled up by it, bottled up by fear, and your life is spent in these deep, dark places, let your fear drive you to your knees before the Lord. Let your fear drive you to greater faith and let your fear drive you to the truth of Jesus Christ. You can sit over here under the piano for the rest of your life if you want to. Or you can stand over here on solid ground in the truth and in freedom from the fears that have kept you bottled up for so many years. The key is to behold, to look at, to fixate on, to meditate on, to take in the great truth of Jesus Christ. Your fear will recede in direct proportion to how much you fixate on God's truth. And your fear will grow in direct proportion to how little you fixate on God's truth. And so this week, let me encourage you to fight that great fear with greater truth. If there's one thing I'll ask you this week, it is to read Jesus. Read the Gospels. Read the Christmas story. Take it in. Let the truth of Jesus wash over you and address those fears that you have. Read your Bible. Know the truth of God. Understand who Jesus is and what He came to do. And then fight that great fear with the great truth of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
for some it's a little heavy this morning. I get it. A lot of information to take in. Drinking from a fire hose almost this morning. A lot of stuff thrown at you. A lot of different things to think about. But the word to you this morning is behold. Look at, fixate on the good news of Jesus Christ. What is it that that good news needs to do in your life today? For some, it is the good news that you need to believe for the very first time and say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that I am a sinner lost and bound for hell apart from Him, and I have come this morning under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and I know He's pulling me toward Him, and I need to submit this morning, and it's time for me to believe. For others, it's time to submit a fear to the Lord. You're holding on to it because it's part of your identity. And maybe today you say, Lord Jesus, I will behold the truth of the gospel. And no longer will I behold and hold on to this fear. I will fight it. But not on my own, Lord. I'll fight it with the great truth of Jesus. I'm not sure how God is calling you to respond this morning. But my prayer is that you'll not leave until you do. I'll be down here be happy to pray for you. You can come with a friend if you'd like. They can pray for you. If you've got questions about what does it mean to follow this Jesus who takes away my fear, I'd be happy to talk with you as long as it takes. Don't leave this morning without understanding the truth that can conquer your fear. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth that's found in Jesus Christ. Not just what is written about him, but who he is. We pray, Lord, that your truth would wash over us this morning and this week. And may we behold it once again. Set us free, Lord, from our fears. Remind us to fight those fears with the great truth of the gospel. We thank you for how it sets us free. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand together as we close with a song, please?